Thank you so much for joining us on Teach Me How to Money. Today, we have a great guest. We have Kristen Wong. She's the author of Get Money, Live the Life You Want, Not Just the Life You Can Afford. Hey, Kristen. Hi. Thanks for having me. I've been reading you for years on Lifehacker. Oh, thank you. So it's so exciting to finally get a chance to talk to you. Yeah, it's great to talk to you, too. You've been writing everywhere. I've seen you in the New York Times and, and Oprah. How did you get started writing about personal finance? Honestly, I was just bad at money, and <laughs> I just wrote kind of these uh, narrative essays about it uh, over at a website called Get Rich Slowly. And it was like a personal finance blog that I would read every morning because I wanted to be better at money. And so they were hiring writers. And what I really liked about this blog, it's J.D. Roth's blog, is that he just kind of wrote about his own experiences with money. And the writers there were really casual and laid back and relatable. And I thought, let me try to audition for this. So I auditioned for a writer role there. And I guess my stories kind of resonated with a lot of their readers. And slowly through writing about money, I became pretty good at it. And I learned how to start investing. I learned how to negotiate. So I learned about money through writing about it. And then soon enough, different outlets saw what I was writing about and asked me if I could come write about personal finance for them and write about it in a really laid back, casual kind of storytelling way instead of just like a really expository, here's how a 401k works kind of way, you know. So yeah, that's a little bit about how I got started. I think people find personal stories very relatable. Um, people want to know that they're not alone. And if I think a voice that says like, hey, I've been there can really help people start to examine their own lives. Yeah, exactly. Because you can explain how something works, but you really don't get a sense of how it works until you see it used in an example, I guess. And you see how somebody's using it in the real world. So one thing I want to talk to you about was just the word broke. What does the yes. word broke mean to you? Well, you know, the I think the literal definition of the word broke is just something you use to s describe like when you've run out of money. To me, when I always think when I think of broke, I think of it suggests that your situation is maybe temporary and that you have some kind of control over it. Huh. And I think it's important to 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 uh, distinguish that from being poor. And I say this because when I was like a broke college student, I was paying off my student loan. I had a couple of jobs. I was really struggling. And I would say to my mom, like, oh, I can't afford to go out for drinks with my friends because I'm poor. And she she would <laughs> kind of get offended because she was like, hey, you have no idea what it's like to be because I mean, this woman, I mean, she had she's a really tough life. Like she grew up borderline homeless. She like lived in communist China. She worked in a sweatshop. She was like, you have no idea what poor means. And so I learned, <laughs> you know, at, at a, le a lesson then, which is there's a very big difference between being broke and being poor. And I feel like, you know, when you're poor, you're often broke, but there is a more serious connotation with that. Whereas with when you're broke, you've just run out of money. And, you know, ideally, you can do something to fix your situation more than you can with being poor. I like what you were saying about how broke can be considered kind of a temporary thing, you know, but it's also up to you to like, it's something that could be fixed. Like if it ain't broke, fix it, you know? It's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, that, that, I never thought about it that way. Yeah. I mean, that's what, when I hear the word broke and when I say the word broke, I am very aware of like, it's a very different situation than somebody who is trying to rise out of generational poverty. And like, you know, there are actual guidelines and th income thresholds for poverty and for being poor. And it's very different than just being broke. Although not to diminish what it feels like to no. be broke, because believe me, it is a struggle. But, 
you know, the good, the good thing about being broke is usually I think like you can learn something and stop yourself and, and make better decisions to get out of that state of being broke. So a lot of our listeners are always looking for, for tips and they're always looking to be better with their money and to grow their savings. And they know that they're sort of surrounded by, by bad choices uh, that are always out there. And so a lot of people say, um, I'm in a bind and I need money now. When you need money now, what are some of the avenues that you can go down? Because sometimes you need money for a bill, sometimes you need money, you know, for food. What are some things that people can do and what are some things that people maybe should not do or should think about doing? Well, I'll start with what people should not do, because I think that's a really important thing to talk about, which is payday loans. Like they're just notoriously bad. John Oliver had this like great takedown of payday loans and why exactly they're so bad. But they basically I mean, that's exactly what they do. They kind of prey on desperate people and they get you trapped in this cycle of debt where you're just never really paying it off because your interest rates are so high and you end up paying way more over than than the principal amount that you took out for that fast cash. Sure. You know, and I, they exist for a reason. There are people who are in really desperate situations and they don't know where else to look. But there are other avenues like I would recommend looking at a credit union, like credit unions have um, hardship loans oftentimes. And you're still going to have an interest rate and you're still going to have to pay it back. But the terms are usually much better than than they are with a payday loan, even like a small bank or even a, a bigger bank, like just Anytime you take out a loan or, you know, something like that, you want to make sure to look at your terms and know what you're getting into. There are also like peer-to-peer -peer lending platforms like Lending Club and stuff where you, you basically borrow loans from other people who are just using the site to sort of earn money with their earn interest with their money. And so they lend out this money to, to strangers or people who are in desperate situations. And again, there's interest, you have to pay it back, but the terms are usually better. So I always recommend those as slightly better choices than a payday loan. Also with a payday loan, you know, you might not be able to see how, how fine the print is. You know, any place where you can actually see what you're signing is really important. They're very sneaky, yeah. Okay, so people say, I'm broke, I'm tired of being broke, and I want to be better with money. How can someone start? Well, I think there are two different steps for starting. Like first, there's the practical step. And then there's also like understanding that money is not just practical. It's also psychological. It's about your habits and behaviors. So there's the behavioral step. The practical step, I would say, is to just track your spending. And I don't just mean like come up with a budget and like do a cursory look at how much you're spending each week. I mean, actually, like write down every single thing that you spend money on or that you're tempted to spend money on, even if it's a pack of gum or something really simple like that. Like the same way, like when people are trying to track a diet and then so they write down every single calorie they eat, sure. this, do, do the same thing with your money because it really like people t and people give this tip all the time, but I don't think people realize like how much light it can shed on your spending habits. I did this experiment back in January after I had written this book. Like I literally wrote a book about money and I still was surprised at how bad my spending habits had become because again, it's just a habit and a behavior thing and you don't give it much thought until it, and then it gets out of control and then you need to reset yourself and, and tracking your spending can really help with that. I would even write down the things that you're tempted to spend money on and why you're tempted to spend money on those things. And it just sort of helps you kind of get in touch with how you're spending your money. The psychological step I would say is to to getting your money in order is to understand why it's important for you to get your money in order. Because I think a lot of times we 
want to get our finances in order because we feel like it's the responsible grown-up thing to do. And we just feel like, you know what, I'm I'm approaching my 30s. It's time to get serious about my money. I need to learn this. But unless, but money is just a tool. Like money matters, but only it only matters in how it's symbolic to you and how it and what it can buy for you, whether that's security, whether it's travel, whether it's, you know, just the flexibility of not having, you know, your student lender coming after you. Money matters in that way. But I think it's really important to understand why it specifically matters to you. Because then when you make spending decisions or decisions not to spend and save for something else, you're doing it to support yourself, not just because you're trying to be a responsible adult. Does that make sense? Like you're doing it, you're putting yourself in control. I think that's great. A lot of people look at their money like, oh, I, I have to, it's adulting, <laughs> you know, it's time to yeah. be, do the grown up thing. You know, what you, it's something like it becomes this chore when in the end, you know, you are in control of your money and where it goes doesn't have to be something so onerous and awful and makes you feel like an old person. <laughs> I know. But all, and also it's like, I think most people don't think too much about their money because they don't feel like they have any control over it. Like most of my friends are like that. They're just like, oh, I don't care about money because I'll like, I'm doing everything that I can. And like, I have no control over this, how much I make or whatever, Um, which is true to a certain extent. But like, I think people are always surprised at how much better they are with money when they do feel in control of it. When you, even when you just feel like you have a small semblance of of control over your money, whether it's, even if it's saying no to something really small, you know, or saving an extra $5 a week, that decision you know, there's research behind this that shows when you feel powerful or you feel in control, you actually make subsequently better spending decisions or better saving decisions. Um, And it's because you want to maintain that sense of power and control over your money. We're getting like really into the psychological stuff now, but I'm sure you've heard of uh, Charles Duhigg, The Power of Habit. I have heard of it, but in case um, for our listeners, if you can explain a little bit more about the power of habit. Yeah. So Charles Duhigg kind of talks about the habit loop and um, and, and he talks about habits and behavior. And so in his latest book, his book called Smarter, Faster, Better, I think it is. And he talks about, you know, how this exact topic, how when you make uh, when you feel more powerful, you feel more in control, you make better decisions or you're more motivated, um, whether it's money or anything else. So one way he says to feel in control is to make a decision, even if it's the most minuscule, small decision you can make, just the habit of making a decision makes you feel more powerful, which is why like, so many personal finance experts say like, oh, just save $5 a week if you can, you know, because it's not even about the $5 a week, because let's face it, that's really not going to add up to much over the course of a year, you know, like, it's not even about the money. It's about like, making the decision to put $5 away makes you feel like you have some sense of control over your money when most people do not feel that way at all. So that's a great start. Yeah, so it's a really good start. It's just like that makes you feel like powerful. So here's a question for a personal question. So you said when you were writing your book, what are some things as you were tracking your spending that you were sort of surprised you spent money on? You know, a big part of it was gifts. Like, I love buying my friends gifts. And so we'd go to the bookstore, we'd go to whatever little store. And I'm like, oh, I should get my friend Dara this, or I should get Jessica this. And I would almost not even count it as spending money because it wasn't on me. Like, I wasn't spending on myself. Do you do that? I just think, of course, you know, I think that we have all these fascinating ways of compartmentalizing our spending and and saving. It's like, oh, it's not for me. It's for my mom. It's for this. It's a different kind of money. It doesn't count. That's not my money. It's not real. Right. It's magical (laughs) thinking. It's my favorite kind of thinking. (laughs) 
Yes, it's the best. Um, so that I just wouldn't, I, and I didn't realize like how often I, I did that. Like I, I just didn't do the, the math and it was adding up to quite a bit. And, you know, it's a great thing to get your friends little gifts every now and then. But man, it's just like, it, I, was, I wasn't doing it to be nice, really. When I get down to the, you know, my mentality behind it, it was, I just wanted to spend money. Like I just saw a cute thing and I wanted to own it for a little bit and give it to someone else. I wasn't, I mean, of course I love my friends, but I was just doing it because but I wanted to that's spend. That's so fascinating though, to, to have uncovered that you really wanted the, the joy of, of, and, you know, the brain buzz. Of, of purchasing something really cute, and then you then you, you you recognize that in yourself. That's so rad. Yes, don't tell anybody that. <laughs> I, it's, it's between us, you know. And I don't. I think I have a leg up because I'm writing about this stuff. And if I if I don't come to terms with it, I'm kind of a hypocrite, you know. But I think any, anybody can do it. You can just. I think that's where tracking your spending because that's that's when I was tracking my spending. You know, like I was writing down, and that's something I didn't even realize I was doing. Sure. So. It's just, it's, you know, when, when you can figure out, I think a lot of times people think that being good with money is just about math. Like you make a budget and suddenly you're great with money. And no, it doesn't work like that. Like it's all about your behavior. So if you can come to terms with that, you will have a leg up for sure. You have to be very, very honest with yourself. Yes, exactly. And, that, and that's hard for people who, you know, we all want to pretend things are better. We all want to think that we're, we're just very generous people, but there's a part of us <laughs> that just wanted to buy that book or buy that, no. that teddy bear. Yeah. I'm just selfish. I just no. want to spend my money. <laughs> I've, I've done the no, same, yeah. trust me. I think we all have. Oh, yeah, totally. So this is something interesting, too. So sometimes, you know, if you have an artistic background or you want to go into the arts, you know, you're sort of raised, quote unquote, to not care about money or to think that it's kind of gauche to care about money. Um have you found that when talking with your other writer or artistic friends? Oh, my God. Yes. Everybody thinks that. I even find myself falling into that trap sometimes um, where it's like you think that making money and being good at what you do are mutually exclusive. Yeah. And I've had writer friends who have blatantly said like, oh, if you're making money as a writer, it means you're a sellout or it means you're a bad writer. Right. right. And, you know, you can be a bad writer and not make any money, too. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's what I say. It's like it doesn't necessarily mean you're bad or good, but the two don't have to be mutually exclusive. But I and I think my biggest problem with that is like when people keep repeating this stereotype of the starving artist, all you're doing is reinforcing that artists aren't supposed to make money. Absolutely. And as somebody who makes my money through my writing, that makes me mad because I'm like, I got to pay the bills, you know, stop saying this because our work is, is valuable. It serves, it has utility. It serves a purpose. It's okay to make money doing it. And it also, when you reinforce the stereotype, you're also making it really hard to talk about money. And you're kind of contributing to this taboo that we have about money that makes it so hard to learn about it. I think that's very frustrating. First of all, if you have an arts degree, you know, it's, it's wonderful to pursue your passion in the arts, especially on a professional level. But a lot of times they don't give us any financial education on how to manage our money, on how to ask for more money, how to find out what our, our art, whether it's writing or painting, um, or graphic design, like what that's worth. So you already are getting out there, I feel a little handicapped. Yeah. I mean, it's hard because you're not even, you're not equipped with the knowledge, which is one part of the problem. And then the other part is like, and you're not really like, you're discouraged from talking about it or, or like embracing it. So you don't have the knowledge and you're not supposed to care about it. So it's a really good way to make sure you never get good at money. So it's like, no wonder so many of us are not great with it, you know? So what is someone who, I mean, and we all have, you know, 
loans and credit card debt. It doesn't matter what you're, if you're painting or if you're working in, in a bank, you know, we all get the same bills in the mail. So what are some ways that someone, like a writer or an artist or just someone who works in a creative field, can feel okay about asking for what they're worth without feeling like they're compromising themselves? Well, I think, um, you know, the first part is getting rid of the idea that you are compromising yourself if you ask for more money. So first, just shedding that starving artist mentality. And then the other part of it is recognizing your professional value, which is very vague advice. How do you measure your professional value? And I think that's when sites like Glassdoor um, or Payscale, like those websites um, come into play and they can be really helpful because you can see what other people who are at your skill level and doing the things that you want to do, what those numbers actually are. Like you can put a number on what your professional value actually is. There's also a website called whopayswriters.com where you can like see what other writers are making who work for similar outlets. And I also think like just kind of pushing the boundaries of your earning potential because a lot of times when you are, you know, in a creative field and you want to make more money, because everybody has this starving artist mindset, a lot of people are used to not making a lot. So I think sometimes you have to push push it a little bit more. And I heard some advice sometime uh, one, a while back that was like creatives or, or not creatives, just any employers, basically whatever offer they make you, they can afford to pay you 20% more. And, you know, I don't know the stats or the stata behind that, uh, the stats or the data behind that, but it seems like a good round number to shoot for if you're negotiating. And I think as artists, we kind of have a tendency to undervalue ourselves. Sure. I know I did for years. And I just I use that 20% as a benchmark to ask for more. Because I feel like 20% is a number. It's probably, you know, closer to what I'm worth, because I do have a, such a bad habit of undervaluing myself. But it's not so much that it's going to scare off a new client, or an employer. So that was a big part for me of kind of getting over that low income was just forcing myself to learn how to negotiate and ask for more. So if I'm broke, or if someone who's listening is broke, how are they supposed to begin to save for the future? That's what a lot of people say to me about retirement. It's like, yeah, that sounds nice, but um, I'm broke now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a tough one. I think it, it really comes to comes down to getting very clear on where your money is going. That's where tracking your spending comes in, becomes helpful. But there's there are also apps that can help you with this. Like everybody loves you need a budget because it does exactly that. It shows you exactly where your money is going and where you can find money to start saving for retirement, to start saving uh, for the future, whatever your plans may be. If you have a if you have if you're lucky enough to have a full time job that has a, the benefit of a 401k with a 401k match, you want to take advantage of that sure. completely. Like that's everybody says it's like free money. If you don't. Have have that, which I think fewer people, less and less people have that benefit with our changing job market, you know, you start an investment account on your own. And there are there's so many tools out there to help you with that. And even if you can just put a little bit aside, you know, if just look at your budget, use you need a budget or track your spending or however you find that extra money in your budget, again, even if it's just $5 or $10, I know it seems like nothing. But again, it's not even about the money. It's about what, how that makes you feel. That puts you in a position of power where you're going to make better decisions going forward, whether it's spending less on restaurants or however you spend your money, finding other opportunities to save, even if it's something as much of a sacrifice as like maybe you have to get a roommate or, you know, I mean, not everybody agrees with this, but when I was in college paying off my student loan, I moved back in with my mom to, to pay it off faster. And these aren't decisions that, you know, are ideal, but I wanted to stay in control. I wanted to 
get this done. So I found every opportunity I could to kind of get out of debt and say, start saving more money. And I think it just starts with a dollar, you know, it just starts with a little bit of money that you can put aside every week to sort of put yourself in that position of like, I'm not a spender. I'm not broke. Like change your story. I'm not some broke starving artist. I am a saver and I am learning to be better with money. You know, I think that's amazing. And this is my last question for you is, um, so I know you wrote first, I called get rich slowly. Um, a lot of people want to get rich quick. <laughs> what, what is the benefit of, of, or what is the ethos and, and benefit of getting rich slowly? Well, I think it's about, you know, slow and steady wins the race. Being good with money is not a one-time quick fix kind of thing. It's an ongoing, it's ongoing maintenance. Like you can be, you can build wealth. It's going to take time. And and budgeting is something you're going to have to do all the time. Like I think a lot of times when people think of budgeting or they think of just getting their money in order in general, they think, oh, I'm just going to spend an afternoon and I'm going to be good with money. Right. No, it's like it, it takes time. And I think it's important to give yourself the time and space to do that. You're not going to be great with money overnight. I'm still learning in a lot of ways. And the other part of that is personal finance is super intimidating to people. Like they have to learn, they think they have to learn everything about investing overnight. They think they learn have to learn how to be a master budgeter overnight, a master negotiator overnight. You don't have to learn everything overnight. Do it slowly. Give yourself permission to learn a little bit at a time and make sure this is an ongoing habit and not just a one-time get rich quick, learn about money quickly kind of thing. It's okay if it takes you some time. This was fantastic. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. You too. Thank you so much. And how can people learn more about you, keep up with what you're doing, and find out more? Um, they can uh, find me at kristenwong.com, or I am on Twitter and Instagram as The Wild Wong. That's excellent. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. You too. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Teach Me How to Money. Send us your questions at teachmehowtomoney at stashinvest.com, and we'll try to answer them on a future episode. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a review on the iTunes store, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't have Stash yet? Just go to stashinvest.com slash podcast, and you can get $5 to get you started on your investment journey. Stash, it's your money. Simplified. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from Stash to the listener. Neither Stash nor any of its officers, directors, or employees makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any of the information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Stash, and Stash is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of advice by Stash to the listener, nor to constitute such a person a client of Stash.